Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're to the last chapter of our journey uh, through the book of Ephesians. We're in the application section of Ephesians. Now that we have new life in Christ, how are we to live in our relationships with one another in the church? We've already been through that. In our relationship to the world, now in the relationships within our families. He addressed husbands and wives in chapter 5, and he's called children to obey their parents, and now he's speaking to fathers and through fathers to parents on how to raise their children. Look at verse 4, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, I pray you would open this text up to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by speaking to the young ladies that one day hope to get married. What will you look for? What will you choose in a husband? We have a book that has been such a blessing to our family, written by Bodie Bauckham. It's called, What He Must Be to Marry My Daughter. What He Must Be to Marry My Daughter. Guess what? It's my favorite book in the world, other than the Bible. <laughs> it's a book that is, uh, unfortunately, I, I think what it's titled is unfortunate. Because the idea here is that uh, this is just written to fathers. Young girls should read this book. Young men should read this book. Fathers and mothers should read this book. One of the things Bodhi says is all of his years of ministry, and he, he says, I don't say this as a comprehensive statement, it's just his experience. He says, I have seen hundreds of girls settle for less than what they would want in a husband. And he says, I don't think I've seen one man settle for less than what they're looking for in a wife. And he says, I don't even know why that is, but he says, it's the experience as a pastor in ministry, over and over and over again, he's seen. And at the beginning of this book, he illustrates the gravity to the implication of the choice of who you'll choose to marry one day. And the illustration he used was Jonathan Edwards. And I found an article online I'm just going to read from at the beginning here as a way of introduction to illustrate the gravity of this choice. And, and this is a YWAM article, Youth with a Mission, uh, wrote this about Jonathan Edwards. Just a, a short little thing here. Here's what he writes. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan preacher in the 1700s. He was one of the most respected preachers in his day. He attended Yale University at the age of 13 and later went on to become president of Princeton College. He married his wife, Sarah, in 1727, and they were blessed with 11 children. Every night, Mr. Edwards was home. He would spend an hour conversating uh, or conversing with his family and then praying a blessing over each child. Jonathan and his wife, Sarah, passed on a great and godly legacy to their 11 children. Uh, an American educator, A.E. Win Winship, decided to trace the descendants of Jonathan Edwards almost 150 years after his death. So someone said, I'm going to trace his descendants. I'm going to look at his family tree. 
His findings are remarkable, especially when compared to another man from the same period known as Max Jukes. Max Jukes' legacy came to people's attention when the family trees of 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to him. He lived in New York at about the same time period as Edwards. Jukes' family was originally studied by sociologist Richard L. Dugdale in 1877. Jukes' descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 uh, other convicts, 310 paupers, meaning beggars or, or very poor descendants, 440 were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely. Jonathan Edwards, on the other hand, here's his legacy. There is one U.S. vice president that came from his lineage over those 150 years, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. How may this be explained, the writer of this article asks. Edwards was a godly man, but he was also hardworking, intelligent, and moral. Furthermore, Winship states, much of the capacity and talent and intensity and character of the more than 1,400 of Edwards' family uh, 1,400 of Edwards' family is due to Mrs. Edwards' time spent with them at home. So these contrasting legacies provide an example, the article goes on to say, of what some call the five-generation rule, how a parent raises their child, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide, influences not only their children, but four generations to follow, either for good or for evil. No wonder back in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So young ladies, our culture says, look for a guy that looks like this. Look for a guy that maybe does these sorts of things that seems fun or these uh, sorts of things that uh, the world might value. But here's what you need to know, young women. Your choice is not just for your well-being while you live the next, whatever it is, 80 years on earth. The choice you make to be the leader of your family, either spiritually or not, will have implications. In only 150 years, thousands will be impacted by your choice. Thousands will be impacted by your choice. And Vodi, at the beginning of his book, this is what he's trying to put in front of them. Rather than thinking selfishly about what you're doing, think about, yes, your life, but your children's life, your grandchildren's life, and parents. Think about the value of time that is ticking away. It is ticking away moment by moment, day by day, 
your children will not be in your home forever. So what is the will of the Lord for parents? Ephesians 6, 4, fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we're going to finish up. This is the third part in this series on this verse. And we're going to work through it like this. We're basically going to ask five questions. Who needs to be nourished up with discipline and instruction? Who supplies the nourishment? Who delivers the nourishment? And then we're going to ask the question, what is discipline and what is instruction according to what Paul is saying in this text? So who needs to be nourished up? Let's consider the task at hand. Now listen carefully. We are not dealing with merely bad behavior as Christian parents. But we're dealing with a spiritual condition. Your children are born in Adam. They're not Christians because you're Christians. They're born spiritually dead. Already in Ephesians chapter 2, we were described as dead. Sons of what? Disobedience. Children were just called to obedience, but every child born is a son of disobedience, enslaved to sinful desires, by nature children of wrath. So your job as parents isn't merely to cause, turn bad behavior into good behavior, but the ones with whom you are parenting are either spiritually dead children or if by the grace of God, born again children who are babes in Christ who need to be brought up and, instruct, and, and instructed. So parenting is not merely behavior modification. Our children will either be controlled by love for their creator or love for something else in creation. And most likely that love will be for themselves. It's one of two options. So here's the challenge. Don't get annoyed or feel hassled when your children sin. Who do you think they were? Who do you think they are? So often as parents, we feel that life is such a ripoff when we have to deal with sinful children. Let's not get annoyed or feel hassled when they sin. Not only should we not get annoyed, parents, but when our children sin, you can even find the grace of God in that because you have a picture into what's going on in their hearts when they sin. It's an opportunity to see their hearts and what their hearts are doing. Parenting is a privilege. You are God's plan to be used for His purpose in those very moments. See, we feel hassled and we feel annoyed when we have to do the very thing that God purposed for us to do, which we ought to see as an incredible privilege to be able to be used of God in this way. As one pastor put it, we can't change our children with our threats. One, two, three. You see, if we were just dealing with behavior modification, maybe we could deal with our children that way. Just threaten them. Just come up with whatever you can think of to get them to do the thing you want them to do so that they're not such a bother to you. But if we're dealing with children that are spiritually fallen and broken and dead in their trespasses and sins, and even if they're born again, their fight is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. 
which means this task of parenting. The weapons of our warfare need to be spiritual. Listen, where are we going in this text? Later in Ephesians 6, we're just told clearly, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Your wrestling match is not against your children. They're flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers of dominion, cosmic powers that are at work. Sin in your children's heart is at work. Satan is at work. The world system, which Satan is the prince over, is at work. And so as we ask the question, who needs to be nourished up? It is children with spiritual needs. It's not just children that need information. The secular world thinks you get rid of crime by just education. Well, education without a converted heart just helps them be more sophisticated in their wickedness. What we need is converted hearts. Proverbs 22, 15 says this, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that folly, and I know God gave them to us in cute packages. Children are very cute and can be very sweet, but the Bible says inside that cute little child is folly that is bound up that needs to be driven away by discipline. So who supplies the nourishment? If our children need spiritual parenting, who supplies the nourishment? What is the food? Well, in our text, it's discipline and instruction. So, so why am I using the word nourishment? You remember that, that term for bring them up in the Lord? can also be, it, it describes nourishing them, feeding them, helping them become mature. That's, that, that's why we're using this word. So what is the food? What is the nourishment? In our text, it's discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. So Arnold, a commentator, speaking on this of the Lord, says this is a subjective genitive, or possibly uh, even as a genitive of source. Here's what, here's what that means. It refers then to instruction and admonition that proceeds from the Lord and prescribed by him. And so the NLT captures this when it says it's discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So our children have spiritual needs, and what they need is instruction and discipline that is from him. The source of it is not us parents. What our children need is not fundamentally us. But they need to hear from the Lord. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So God supplies the nourishment. So who delivers the nutrients? Who delivers the nourishment? Well, in our text, he says, fathers. And we've already talked about how it's not that mothers are excluded in this, it's that fathers are called to lead the way in it. We know mothers aren't excluded. Proverbs 1.8 says this, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. But when God comes to call account for the children either being nourished or not, He's tapping on the father's shoulder. Eve gave Adam the fruit 
They're both hiding, but who does God come after? Adam. And so it is through the father and then obviously through his mother too, the nutrients comes to our children. So parents are the conduit from which his instruction and admonition come. Think of yourselves this way, parents. You are conduit from which God's discipline and God's instruction needs to travel through. Now let's just admit, there's some humbling there. We are stewards. A steward is different than the king or the master. A steward is a servant of the Lord. We are stewards as parents. The children are not ultimately our children, are they? We have not been given an autonomous authority as parents. God didn't say, here's the deal, parents. I put you in charge. You come up with your ideas. You come up with your instruction. You come up with your goals for your family. I just give you autonomous freedom. That's not what God has done. But rather, the authority he has given to parents is a conduit type authority. We are to be stewards of what the Lord wants to teach them and instruct them in. We are to be representatives of God's love, His discipline, and God's authority to our children. But our children must see that we are conduit. They're sinners, and you're a sinner. What if they don't see you as conduit? Who's the, who is this sinner just to tell this sinner what to do? They need to see. How, how are they going to know this in our lives if we don't also repent of our sins and we don't also humble ourselves and show that we are under the authority of Christ? If they don't see us reading God's Word, how are they to see that our parenting is coming from the Lord? Because if we're not given over to the authority of Christ, then they're never going to perceive our parenting as being from Him. So what is this discipline? I mean, I always heard it, the fear and admonition of the Lord. The ESV has it as the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we want to kind of dive in and understand these words and uh, get a feeling of what God has actually called us uh, to do. And then we'll end with just a little practical uh, application of, of how to think through this. So that word discipline in the ESV is the word paideia, paideia in the Greek. It's to provide instruction with the intent of former, forming proper habits of behavior. Sometimes it's translated teach, to instruct, to train. Clinton Arnold says this, instruction, paideia, was commonly used in the Greco-Roman world for the training of children, which is consistent with the fact that it is formed on the basis of the word pios, which is child. So it's the idea of forming up, training up, habitual training is the idea. The word was used extensively in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. All right? So when the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, when it's getting translated into Greek, often this word paideia was used, uh, especially in the Proverbs. 
where it has a sense of receiving instruction, but sometimes also includes the notion of being the subject to discipline. Uh, so listen to, to Proverbs 15.5. A fool spurns his father's paideia, discipline, is what the Septuagint says, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. So paideia has this idea as uh, training by discipline. I kind of think of, I don't want to give the wrong idea here, but you think of basic training. So it takes much discipline and character to get through basic training. It's not easy. It's hard and it's consistent over time. You're molding a soldier through basic training. So this, this word paideia has the idea of training children because it comes from the word pious. So let me share two different ways this word is used in the New Testament. Because the goal in doing this, we're trying to say is, so what's this to look like as parents? In 2 Timothy 3.16, we see this word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For paideia in righteousness. See, it has the idea God's Word is for training in righteousness. You see how you feel this process? This consistency over time, this isn't a sprint, this is like a marathon. It's the type of training that's more like a marathon. Or Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God appeared, for this purpose, to train us to not live unholy lives. You realize that? Why are you to live holy lives? Because of the grace of God. You're supposed to look at the grace of God, and that's supposed to train us to holy living. So we see the word there. Acts 22.3. The word training isn't used, but a different word. This is Paul describing his education. He says, I was born a Jew, or I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That word educated is the word. You know, like trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was educated. He was brought up under this rabbi and his teaching over the course of time. So the word is used in a training sense there. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word is used as a more discipline, uh, in a more disciplined sense. You know, the ESV says in the discipline of the Lord in, in our text. So 1 Corinthians 11.32 says this, but when they are judged by the Lord, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So God does an earthly judgments on us called discipline or training so that we won't be destroyed. Titus 2.11, or I mean 2 Corinthians 6.8 And nine says it this way. We are treated as impostors and are yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. So that word punished there is the same word. One more, which is actually nine more. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 12. If we're looking in the New Testament... And we want to see the area where this word is used nine times in the course of just a few verses. It's in Hebrews 12. 
And what a great place to look because we're looking at how God parents us. And we're going to see this word used in more of a disciplinarian way. All right? So Hebrews 12, we're going to start in verse 5. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline. So there it is. Every time you hear, hear the word discipline, it's that word. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Two mistakes children can make. That's oh, no big deal, God's discipline. That's regarding it lightly. And then another way is, oh God, you're no good. You're just punishing me too much. And so we grow weary of it. He says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So what does it mean God is love? Well, part of what it means is he disciplines. Parents today in our culture are so afraid to discipline because they want to love their children. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? We'll just come to 2023 in the United States. And you'll, find, you'll find some of these examples. Evidently it was tougher in those days to find that. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see the purpose of discipline there? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So what characteristics does this discipline take according to this, this text? Is it not a loving, firm, for our good, holiness-driven fortitude, building up a, a, a do-not-give-up attitude, not being weak-kneed. So when the Father disciplines us, it, it, it's for bringing about holiness, Christ-likeness, a strength, a courage, a never-give-up attitude. And none of it is described as pleasant in the moment. But it yields fruit later. So this word has this idea of a habit-forming discipline by its very nature. It's something that is continually needed day after day after day. It takes much self-sacrificial effort. Because you are feeding them. How often do we need to eat? How often do we need nourishment? We need it all the time. It's same spiritually. This is what our children need. Do parents need a break? Is it wrong for parents to go on a vacation and have the grandparents get absolutely tired and exhausted? No, that can be good. That can, that can be restoration. What the children need is a strong marriage. But what have we been called to? Is it not consistency? Over time, like a marathon, in a sort of training and instruction? The Proverbs are filled with instruction here. Let me just rattle off five Proverbs real quickly so you can just hear them. We're not going to spend time here. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Do you hate your child? 
spare the rod. If you love him, be diligent in discipline. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. <laughs> Which means sometimes it seems hopeless, right? <laughs> and what's needed in the time of hopelessness is a sort of instruction, a sort of training, a sort of correction that's needed in, in the moment. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Well, how would you set your heart on putting him to death? But withholding discipline. Listen to Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, from hell. So this is talking about corporal punishment. I mean, what we would call a spanking. There is a time when children are young, the secular psychologists say they just lack information. So you have parents that will kneel down with the two-year-old, put on your coat. Why? And the parent gets down on their knees and they say, well, you see, sweetie, it's cold outside. If they get cold outside, you're going to get a cold. They don't need information at two years old. The main fundamental thing they need is they need to know that in this world there is an ultimate authority and that authority is God. Every one of our children will stand before God. Young children need to realize, put on the coat. Why? Because I am the authority by God's good pleasure in your life and God has called you to be obedient. You need to do it. You see, when you're calling them to obedience to you in that moment, you're showing them Christ. You're showing them God. And so a two-year-old will respect a spanking on the butt. Know it shouldn't leave a mark. Know it's not to beat them or to do it in anger. Yes, it is to communicate. There is uh, authority in this world. And if our children don't learn that, then they'll end up like the gentleman we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. They'll, they'll build up an offspring like that. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame. To his mother. Proverbs 29:17. Discipline your son and he'll give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. John Stott says this: above all, parents must be clear about their motives. It is always dangerous for them to discipline their children when they are annoyed, when their pride has been injured, or when they've lost their temper. How often I am tempted to this. Your children act up in the store. They're embarrassing you in the store. And all of a sudden, anger flushes into you. Now, what's the anger over in that morning, in, the, in that moment? It's probably our own pride that we're not made, being shown to look good in public. This is not the time to grab your child and angrily spank them, right? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, when you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. And when we're talking about spanking, we're talking about little children. We're not talking about children as they grow up and you can reason with them. In some of the most uh, messed up and abusive forms of this in Christianity, they even have husbands are called given the right to spank their wives or to discipline their wives physically. That's abuse. That's wrong. 
And that's in conservative fundamental culture of Christianity in America. But the Bible does call us to discipline. All right? So that first word, I see we're running out of time here. That first word has this idea of training. It's not minus discipline, but it's much more than just what we think of uh, when we hear the word discipline. The second word is nuthesia. Uh, uh, it comes, this is a compound word uh, in, the, in the Greek that comes from nous, which means uh, mind, and tithemi, which means to place. Uh, biblical counseling used to be called nuthetic counseling. It's a combination of these two words. And the idea was this. The job of the biblical counselor is to place in the mind of the counselee a different way of thinking. Sometimes it gets translated admonition. So we're called to, to train them up, to discipline them, but then we're called to place a different way of thinking in their mind. Clinton Arnold says, Nethusia is a more narrowly focused than the previous word, paideia. It refers to verbal counsel, including exhortations to proper behavior, warnings and rebuke. The meaning of the term remained close to its etymology, which combines the, the word for mind, noose, and the verb to put or to place. It's been accurately described as the exertion of influence upon the mind, implying that there is resistance so by means of admonition, advice, warning, reminding, teaching, spurring on, a person can be redirected from wrong ways and his behavior corrected. Close quote. John Piper simply summarizes this word like this. Instruction with imperatives, which are commands and warnings. All right? John MacArthur says this. It, it means literally to put in mind. And it also includes the connotation of correction. It refers to the type of instruction found in the book of Proverbs where the primary focus is on training and teaching of children. Now get this. It does not have as much to do with factual information as with right attitudes and principles of behavior. So the first word might have the idea of training them in the whole counsel of God and in catechisms in all this factual information, yes, with correction and discipline, but this word is, it, it is more focused uh, on, on the idea uh, of speaking to the attitudes and the principles of behavior in the moment. The idea of, has more the idea of a verbal warning. Our children need verbal warnings. Listen to how this word uh, is used in Titus 3.10. For as a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice have nothing more to do with him. So you see, there's a, it's like a command. It's not a bunch of information. It's an imperative command that kind of comes with a warning. It's an authoritative warning. Um, we have this in 1 Corinthians 10.11 after Paul described how uh, because of the sexual immorality of those in Israel, 23,000 died. Others put Christ to the test, were bitten by serpents. Others grumbled and were destroyed. And then the very next verse says this. Now these happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. You see the idea is like they're written down for our warning. Colossians 1.28 uses this word. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The word admonished is used in 1 Corinthians 4.14 4, where he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. So the act of parenting is both this discipline or this training up 
but it's also moment by moment throughout the day. Warning. Do this. Don't do that. Look at the consequences that are in front of you. Aren't those words rich? As we look at them in the scripture. So now let's just close with, I want to give you four practical things um, to think about when you think about your parenting. All right? These aren't in your notes, so if you're a note taker, you can just write them down. The first one is the training should be by example. I'll just give you all four right now. It should be by example. It should be comprehensive. It should be time-consuming. And it should be heart-focused. All right? Let me just unpack these real quick. So your parenting needs to be done with character yourself. Love and passion for the Lord and others needs to be seen in your life if you want in your children's. You need to be pursuing Christ because you can't give away what you don't have yourself. So you can teach all the right things, but if your children experience this teaching as totally uh, hypocritical, Yes, we're going to fail. Yes, we're going to sin. But they need to see us leading by example. And yes, often leading in repentance. Right? The second thing, the training should be comprehensive. It should be the Scriptures. Right? Because the Scripture is not only authoritative, it's sufficient for all of life and godliness. And by the way, our instruction is from the Lord. And the Lord has given us the Bible. But it also needs to be about life skills and morals. It's a comprehensive training so they can function in this world. Our training should thirdly be time-consuming. There is no quick conference you go to. There is no Sunday school class you drop your kids off or a Wednesday night you drop your kids off or you watch a few videos together as a family and your children will be all right. This is moment by moment, day after day, consistency. It's time consuming. Right? And it's to be done not in our own strength, but with spiritual it needs to be in prayer. We need power from the Spirit. We need the Word of God. Thirdly, the training should be heart-focused, not behavior, merely behavior-focused. It's not that we don't address the behavior. It's just fundamentally we want to be heart-focused. You need to know how to ask good questions to your children to draw out their hearts. Listen to me, parents. You have to learn this. Your children will, will learn how to just get through the week. You don't want them to just get through the week. You want to know what's going on in their hearts. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says this, The purposes in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Your children's hearts are like deep waters, and not just some simple effort will draw it out. You can't just say, how did your day go? What are you thinking? Just tell me. And, and be impatient. Just be done with them. You have to draw them out. You have to woo their hearts up to understand what they're thinking. You need to think about how to do this. This is I've, I've often talked about, you know, at bedtime we'll do the cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. You'll be surprised what your children will what cares are on their hearts that they're ready to cast up to the Lord and lead, lead with Him? Often I think, when I don't ask that question, what cares are they carrying that I don't even know about? And so it needs to be heart-focused. Ministering to the heart of the child, their whole life flows out of their heart. It needs to be virtue-focused. So let me end with this. See, Baptist preachers have like four endings, right? Let me give you an example of how it's not done. 
in an example how it is done by God's grace. Well, you remember Eli in 1 Samuel 3.12 and he has his wicked sons. 1 Samuel 3.12 says this. This is a judgment against Eli and his family. He says, On that day I'll fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning this house from the beginning to the end. And I'll declare to him, I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Eli wasn't doing the wicked things. His sons were. But he knew it and he wasn't restraining them. And the curse comes down on Eli and his family. But when Paul writes to Timothy, this is so beautiful. I think of the single moms out there too that are going at this alone. Here's what he writes. 2 Timothy 1.5 I am reminded of your sincere faith. Paul's reminded of this young man that has a sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. <laughs> Dwelt in your grandmother this faith, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells as well in you. And a couple chapters later he says this. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. His grandmother and his mother, right? And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 